my guess is that most of you have a Christmas ornament that is really special to you. And it might be hanging on your tree at home. And you would say it's your favorite ornament. It might not necessarily be the most beautiful ornament that you have. It might not even be the most decorative one or even in the best condition. But chances are you have an ornament hanging on your tree at home that when you look at that ornament, you have a story to tell. So you tell stories to your children and to your grandchildren. My wife Pat and I got married on December 20th. So somebody gave us one of these bulbs or Christmas ornaments. And I know you're not going to be able to read it, but it says 1980. And congratulations on your first Christmas together. And then it says, Christmas is a love story written in our hearts. And yes, I know 1980, that means 40 years ago. And I'm taking care of that. Don't worry that I'm going to forget. But when I see that Christmas ornament, it reminds me of that first Christmas that Pat and I had together. It reminds me of that Christmas tree that we found out in the woods, and that thing was so big, we couldn't fit it fully into our hatchback, so Pat had to sit in the back seat and hold on to the tree for the 20-kilometer ride home. When I look at that ornament, I think of our apartment that we lived in. We were on the third floor of a building that housed Wilson's Plumbing and Heating. So it was a big apartment. It had two bedrooms, and it had slanted walls, and I don't know how many times I hit my head against those walls. We lost count of that. But that building would lose heat. Here we were in a building owned by Wilson's Plumbing and Heating, but we were always without heat. And then I also remember that I had some growing to do as a husband. I could give you all kinds of examples, but here's just one. I'm sitting on the sofa watching sports on TV, and my wife is scrubbing the floor, and she is going at it really hard. And I speak up. I say, honey, slow down. You're going to give yourself a heart attack. Not, honey, maybe I could do that for you, but slow down. You're going to give yourself a heart attack. So maybe you have an ornament that brings a special memory. And it might be an ornament that bro- that's actually broken. It might show its age a little bit. It might not be in great shape, but it tells a powerful story. We have in Matthew chapter 1 a number of ornaments on the first Christmas tree, the family tree of Jesus. And as we read through these names, each name has a story behind it. And some of the stories are stories of brokenness. Some of them are stories of pain and sin and guilt. But each of these ornaments tell a story. So we're going to look at some of these different names as we go through Matthew chapter 1. A really good question is, why did Matthew actually begin his gospel this way? We don't read about the genealogy of Jesus in Mark, Luke, or John. So why does Matthew include it? You've heard that said that there are two sides to every story, but I had three kids growing up in my house, and I can say that there are three sides to every story. They would each give a different perspective on an event that had occurred. It 
would depend on their personalities. It would also depend upon how much trouble they might be in for the part that they played in this. So that's what we have here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each give a different perspective on the birth of Jesus Christ, this same historical account. And they're coming at it through different lenses so that we can see the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ. And the best way to get an accurate story of it all is to see it from each of their perspectives. So the guys are writing to different audiences. Mark and John, they're actually primarily writing to the Romans or to the Greeks. And they don't include the genealogy of Jesus because the Greeks would have no interest in that whatsoever. They don't want to know anything about Jewish lineage. And they also don't include the more human side of Jesus like Luke does in his... So... He talks about the fact that Jesus was born to this poor teenage mother named Mary and that it was a difficult journey to Bethlehem. It would have been hard for the Greeks to get past that. So they each begin their books differently. John begins by affirming the deity and divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. So John's account of the birth of Christ is, in the beginning was the Word, so Jesus has always existed, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now Luke, he gives a more historical account, and he gives times and places. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So each of these gospel writers gives us a little different focus. Matthew includes the genealogy of Jesus because it's important to establish for the Jewish audience that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is the one the world has been waiting for. But here's something interesting. You could have actually been able to get all that information down at the temple. This was a matter of public record. Up until 70 AD, everything was included at the temple. After the temple was destroyed... We've lost all of that. So when Matthew records this, his genealogy could have been verified or it could have been refuted if it wasn't true. So he wants to make sure that people know that Jesus has a legal right to be the Messiah, that he's the one they've been waiting for. Because there are other ways that you could prove he was the Messiah. You could look at things like all the prophecies that were fulfilled. But if you couldn't prove it from his from his lineage, then none of the other things mattered. So Matthew begins with a list of names that we tend to just kind of skip over. They don't seem too relevant to us, but this is a foundational thing in understanding that Jesus was the promised one that the world was waiting for. And it's not an exhaustive list. There are a lot of names left out. But the thing that surprises us, maybe shocks us the most, are the names that are in there. It's not what you'd expect to see in the introduction of the Son of God. So you've got Tamar, and her story is pretty disturbing. We don't even want to talk about her story in church. She disguised herself as a prostitute and then had sexual relations with her father-in-law. And then we look 
and wonder, why is Tamar included in the genealogy of Christ? Then we have other names like Rahab. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute. Ramar was a prostitute. And we're not going to go into her story, but I encourage you to go to Joshua chapter 2 and read her story. And as you read that story, see if you can find something that justifies her being in the genealogy of Jesus, being in Jesus' family tree. And I'm sure it won't take very long before you understand that. And then you go a few verses further, and there's Bathsheba. And Matthew doesn't even use her name. Look at how he records it in verse 6. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. And I think, come on, Matthew. Why, why can't you even use her name? Do you really need to introduce her as Uriah's wife? That's what we see going on in our world today. Here is Ainsley's father. Here is Ainsley's mother. When we're being introduced to friends and parents of our children's parents. But what does this bring to mind when he does do this? It brings to mind the affair that David and Bathsheba had. It brings to mind the fact that she got pregnant and then David had Uriah placed on the front lines so it was a certain death for him and all of this was to cover over the sin that they had committed together. But still, why would you include that, Matthew? It's a big stain on the family tree. So you see Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, and you're left wondering, why these names? So we understand that he's trying to establish the right of Jesus to be the Messiah, the legal right, but why? Maybe Matthew isn't actually giving names just to prove who Jesus was, but he's giving names to prove why Jesus came. The names don't just give evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They give evidence that he was hope because he was the Savior of the world. So there's a lot of scripture in the Old Testament that talks about people's mistakes and it talks about their darkest moments. And we read all of that and we wonder, you know, why is it in there? Because it's all leading up to our introduction to Jesus. So Matthew 1, 21, she will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And how is Jesus introduced? He's introduced as Savior. And all these stories and all these names show a world of brokenness. But here is Jesus, the Savior, the Redeemer, and he has come to put all those pieces back together again. So Matthew isn't just telling us, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's saying he's also the Savior. He has come to make things right. The person we want to spend a few minutes on here this morning is Ruth. And her story is different from Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab. Ruth needed God's grace in a different way, different than we often think of. These other women needed God's grace for the past, for broken families, for decisions that they'd made. But Ruth, she needed God's grace to get her through a lot of suffering and loneliness and bitterness because things in her life had just 
falling apart. And I know this is the time of year when we like to focus on peace and joy, and I get that. But for many of you, you also understand that Christmas and this season of the year can be very difficult because there's a lot of pain that comes to the surface. You remember things freshly, and it just hurts. And if we were all honest, we would say that Christmas can bring a lot of stress and pressure. And we need grace. We need God's peace. A Christian psychologist named David Lewis wrote an article, and he reported, and men, you need to write this down. He reported, like this guy's a scientist, he said that he can scientifically show that shopping is hazardous to a man's health. And he has the numbers and the evidence to back all of that up. He tested volunteers, men between the ages of 70, excuse me, ages of 22 and 79, by sending them out to do some Christmas shopping, and then he recorded their blood pressure rates. And here's what David Lewis says. It's up on the screen. Their blood pressure rates were what you would expect to see in a fighter pilot going into combat. And that's so true, isn't it? Like some of you can relate to that pressure. Monday night, Pat and I just stopped by Halifax Shopping Center to pick up three pairs of tights for our granddaughter. And okay, I, I could handle that. The place was almost empty. But then on the way out, she points, there's the gap. You, you need a new shirt. And uh, no, 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 I've got to go home. I have to work on my sermon. I, I got out of that one. I was there as long as I needed to be. But fortunately, this year, COVID-19 is giving us a break, guys, on going to the mall. So we all have ways to deal with the stress of the season, the pressures of Christmas. But when we're talking about Ruth, I want you to understand what she's dealing with. The challenges aren't lineups to get into a store. They're not lineups at the cash register. It's not looking at all of these people that drop in on you unexpectedly at Christmas. Rather, she has experienced a lot of pain and a lot of loss. And we read her story in the book of Ruth. And it's only four chapters long. And the story begins with a man who is married to a woman named Naomi. And they have two sons. And a famine strikes their country of Israel. And it strikes so severely that he has no way to feed his family. So they make the tough decision to move to a neighboring country named Moab so that they can find some food to eat. And Moab was an enemy of Israel. The people of Moab worshipped many gods, but he went there in hopes of providing for his family. So their two boys grew up. They met and they married Moabite women. And then sometime later, the father dies and leaves Naomi with her two sons and her daughters-in-law. And then some more time passes, and both of her sons pass away. So it's Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws living in this foreign land of Moab. So Naomi decides the only thing she can do is go back home again. And she wants to hope that things have changed a little bit there. She encourages her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. Go back to your own families. Stay here with them. It's their home country. 
But one of them decides to stay in Moab. But the other, Ruth, she decides that she is going to go with her mother-in-law. And you'll recognize some of these words in Ruth chapter 1. But Ruth said, Don't beg me to leave you or to stop following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. I ask the Lord to punish me terribly if I do not keep this promise. Not even death will separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had firmly made up her mind to go with her, she stopped arguing with her. So these two women who've experienced incredible loss, they decide that they're going to stick together. Now, you've probably heard those words read during a wedding ceremony. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I will die. Nothing but death will separate us. And that's used to express love between the bride and groom. But if you were actually going to be biblical, you would actually turn to your future mother-in-law sitting in the front row, and you would quote those words. But that's not going to happen. So we've taken it out of context in weddings, but it does show commitment. It does show a deep love and devotion. So Ruth goes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to her hometown, but they're filled with grief. They're filled with sadness. And we also read that Naomi is filled with bitterness, bitter about the way that life has turned out for her. This isn't the way it was supposed to go. And some of you understand that very well because your lives haven't gone the way that they were supposed to go. Edgar Jackson actually paints a picture of grief, and here's how he describes it, and you can read this with me. Grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. Grief is the man so filled with shock and uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is a mother who walks daily to a nearby cemetery because she knows that part of her is buried there. Grief is a silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who's no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone, after eating with another for so many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and they never will be. So for the family that last year sat around the table, and they were so excited, they were so proud of themselves that they had actually provided the money and the food for another family less fortunate than them to be able to have a Christmas meal together. But now, this Christmas, they're on the receiving end of that. They are the less fortunate, and they're not sure how this happened. Or maybe it's for the parents who keep looking at the door and keep hoping and hoping that this will be the Christmas that their lost child finally comes home again. There is grace for you. See, during Christmas, it's hard to know what to do with that emotion. Some of the grief, some of the suffering. Lights are hung everywhere. Carols are being sung. And there's this not-so-subtle message. Just keep it to yourself and get over it and just pretend to be happy. But John James and Frank Cherry, they wrote a book on grief recovery, and they tell about 
a boy named Johnny. And they traced and learned about grief recovery and told about his life and how he learned about grief and pain very early on. At the age of five, Johnny's dog died. And he was stunned because this was his best friend. This dog slept at the foot of his bed every night and he burst into tears. But his dad, he wants to help, so he says to Johnny, Don't feel bad, Johnny. We'll get you a new dog on Saturday. So in that one sentence, Johnny is taught to deal with his grief the way that many of us have been taught, that you can bury your feelings, you can replace your losses, and just move on, no problem. But a few years later, John is in math class, and he hears that his grandfather has died. And this is the same grandfather that he spends his summers with, the one that he goes fishing and golfing with. And he tried not to cry in front of his friends, but he broke down sobbing on his desk. Well, the teacher, like, she felt so uncomfortable and awkward about this. Like She said, why don't you just go to the principal's office and have some time alone? You'll feel better. Just give it some time. So John is told another way to deal with grief. You just grieve alone and you give it time. And I think many of us have learned to deal with grief that way. Maybe you've tried to bury your feelings and basically replace your losses. Or you've tried to grieve alone and give it time. But that's not how it works. It isn't that easy. The message of Christmas is that there is grace for you. And here's how that grace comes. When Jesus is born into this world, we then have God with skin on. And it changes everything as far as how he knows us and relates to us and how we are able to relate to him. Because suddenly when Jesus is born into this world, there's this very clear message to those who are hurting. He knows what it's like. He knows how you feel. And there's comfort and there's grace in traveling down the path of life with someone who knows what it's like, someone who knows how you feel. And the Bible makes it clear that this is true of Jesus. For those of you who are struggling financially, there is grace because you're traveling along a path where Jesus is traveling with you. Because Jesus was poor. His parents were in such a tough spot financially that they couldn't even afford a lamb to sacrifice at the time of his birth. They had to go with two doves. And the Bible makes it clear that this is true of Jesus. He understood what you are feeling. Some of you are struggling because you have family that don't support you and don't understand you. And at this time of the year, that becomes even more evident. It comes to the surface. Jesus knows what it's like. He had a mother and brothers that didn't understand him. They actually wanted to have him committed because he was going off into his ministry. Some of you have a friend who let you down. And at this time of year, you're reminded of that. But Jesus knows what it's like. His closest friends betrayed him and abandoned him at his greatest time of need. And some of you have been treated unfairly. And Jesus knows what that's like. And there's grace in knowing that he has felt the way you feel. He was unfairly sentenced to a painful death. 
And there's grace in knowing that the one who travels with you knows what it's like. The writer of Hebrews speaks about this kind of gift of Christmas, that Jesus has walked in our shoes, and he knows what it's like. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has gone into heaven, let us hold on to the faith we have. For our high priest is able to understand our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we are, but he did not sin. Let us then feel very sure that we can come before God's throne where there is grace. There we can receive mercy and grace to help us when we need it. Because Jesus knows what it's like, been where you are, experienced the pain and the suffering and the challenges of life, we can approach God's throne with confidence, knowing that he will help us, knowing that he will give us a peace that just surpasses all understanding, knowing that he'll give us the grace that we need to get through to the next day. He knows what it's like, and he will help us in our time of need. So the first Christmas Jesus is born, and the moment he comes into this world, God knows what it's like. And the other things we're reminded of as we study Ruth is that God isn't finished writing the story. He's not finished writing your story. The Ruth and Naomi return to Naomi's hometown, and they, as I said, they're hurting and they're suffering. They've experienced great loss. There's bitterness, but they go there. And they find redemption. And Naomi was from a very small town that at that time nobody really paid any attention to. It, you might know the name of the town. It was Bethlehem. So this Moabite widow goes with her mother-in-law to this small town of Bethlehem. And there she meets a man named Boaz. They fall in love. Boaz redeems her. And he takes care of her. And they have a son named Obed. And then their son has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And how does God work that out? This widow from this pagan country of Moab is now in the genealogy of Jesus. And she is the great-grandmother of King David. I don't know how he does it, but he still does. He takes a story that seems hopeless and broken, and when you give him the pen and you say, look, I've just made a mess of things. I don't see any good way out of this. I just want you to write the rest of the story. And that's where God does his best work. So that's the invitation as we prepare our hearts for Christmas this year. It's in your own heart and mind and if you could just imagine that you're writing your own story and at this point you're going to say God here's the pen and I want you to write the rest of the story bow with me please father we just thank you for your grace the grace that not only forgives us but that grace that strengthens us and gives us peace in our time of need Lord, I pray for all who are watching today because we know that our story is broken. We know that as ornaments we may not seem that attractive, but would you do for us what you did for Tamar and for Rahab and for Bathsheba and for Ruth? Would you let your grace rain down on us this Christmas? 
And God, you are a God who redeems. You, you are the God who puts those pieces back together. And so we give you the pen and we ask you to write the rest of the story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus, then you know how to do that. You found us here this morning. Just contact us at the office. Email us. Message us. Whatever you have to do. But we would love to talk to you about how you can allow God to take the pen and write the rest of your story.